Well, good morning, everybody. I hope that uh, you are um, excited a little bit about the uh, this week. It is um, the the week where we celebrate Christ, His Passion, and next Sunday, His Resurrection. Now, I think as people, we should understand that we are to celebrate that every Sunday, right? That's why we meet on Sunday. We meet on Sunday because Sunday is the day when Christ rose from the dead. And we are grateful for that because that means that what he did, it worked. What he did worked because he rose from the dead. Let me go ahead and pray before we begin. Father, we cannot understand your word apart from your spirit. It will just bounce off of us or go in one ear and come out the other. And so we petition, we ask you that you would give each one of us here eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would behold wonderful things from your word and that we would be changed people looking more and more like Christ. Pray, Lord, that the thoughts of my heart and the meditations of my heart and the thoughts that I have would be pleasing in your sight, and I would speak only your words, only that which would be to the building up of your people. Bless us now, we pray, as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever looked for something, but you couldn't find it because the company that made that thing had recently changed their packaging. And it's like right in front of your face, and you're like, that's not it. And though it was right under your nose that entire time, you couldn't find it because it wasn't what you were expecting. Right? Today, what we're going to see is that through, though Jesus is right in front of us, we can miss him if we aren't careful because he isn't what we are expecting. And because of this, we need to see the real Jesus by allowing him to frame all of our reality. So today we're going to look at this in three points. First, we'll see Jesus. Second, we'll see how people miss Jesus. And then, believing Jesus. And so before I read, I just want to give to you a little bit of context. When we look at the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke we see that Jesus has just finished his public ministry and the private teaching of his disciples. He taught them all about true greatness, true faith, and true love. He showed them what it is really like to know and worship God. And as Jesus and the disciples head to Jerusalem, they're amazed and terrified. They wonder, how can Jesus be so resolutely set upon going to Jerusalem where he knows that the religious leaders are going to try to kill him. And so Jesus has told them multiple times, and just recently, the third time, that he must die and rise again. But the disciples just don't get it. They are still trying to figure out who will be the greatest in God's kingdom, and they, will, and they expect that that kingdom is going to manifest itself real soon. And so, 
A few of them are even bold enough to ask to sit at his right hand and his left hand when he reigns, and so they still are missing the entire point. Actually, almost everyone is still missing the point. Jesus explains that his kingdom is upside down. And it's backwards compared to what the world thinks about it. The greatest is the least. The servant is the ruler. Jesus came to serve and to die, and he's the greatest of all. His kingdom is so different from their expectations. They're looking for a kingdom that the world understands. They're not looking for Christ's kingdom. Now Jesus heads to celebrate the Passover with the pilgrims from outside of Jerusalem. They've just passed through Jericho. He's recently done a marvelous miracle converting a tax collector and healing a blind man. This blind man had proclaimed Jesus to be the son of David, which is a hint of his divine right as king and true ruler over Israel. And this man is following Jesus along with others as they head to Jerusalem. He and the disciples arrive at Bethany. They spend their Sabbath with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus' feet are anointed with a perfume that costs almost a year's wages. He's being celebrated. He's being given royal treatment that he deserves. And so now they leave out on Sunday morning to head to Jerusalem. And this is where our story begins. Luke chapter 26, beginning at verse 28 through the rest of the chapter. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go to the village in front of you where... On entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do 
for all the people were hanging on his words. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. Amen? So our first point today is how the crowd saw Jesus, seeing Jesus. Now, it appears that Jesus is in Bethany, heading toward Bethphage by way of the Mount of Olives. Now, this is really significant because of a particular prophecy found in Zechariah. It says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east. Now, while this particular prophecy was not completely being fulfilled at this moment, it had this eschatological fullness of time significance. The king had come, and he stands on his mount overlooking the great city of Jerusalem. You see, this is Jesus' city, right? And Jesus stands looking down upon it as the king, and he is about to approach it. It was at this spot that he sends two of his disciples into a nearby village, probably Bethphage, and he does that to retrieve an unridden colt for him to ride on as they journeyed the remainder of the way to Jerusalem. Now, here's the question. Why in the world, both Mark and Luke do it, do they slow down? I mean, if you think about it, the story's tracking along, and all of a sudden we start talking about details about going to the city and conversations and the words that they're going to say and the responses that they're going to I mean, we have just taken the story and gone from a nice movement of a pace to just getting into detail that you would find in authors, right, that are trying to explain something, right? So, so why are we doing this? I think there's a hint in Matthew's account because he cites the prophet Zechariah, and that's the passage we read for our scripture reading. Actually, ironically, relating to this Christ coming in on a colt, there are two passages in the Bible, both Zechariah that Matthew mentions, but also in Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, there is a prophecy about Judah's descendant, the Messiah. Listen to this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his fowl to the vine, and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he, was wa he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Notice the hint here. He binds his donkey's colt to a vine. Here, the donkey's colt is being untied. So, the king of Judah ties his colt. What is Jesus having done? Untying the colt. You see, this is the king. The king has come to get his colt. This is very important. Judah's son, the one who holds the scepter, Jesus, he is the promised king. He is the one who was promised from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Old Testament. Notice how the disciples are obeying him, right? So he tells the disciples, go, get this thing. And they just do it. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but I think I might have a hard time if somebody told me to go down to downtown Nashua and, like, you know, take something out of somebody's house. And say, hey, and, and then they'd be like, what, what are you doing? Right? And, 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 and they, oh, yeah, yeah, the Lord needs of it. That would be a hard command to obey, wouldn't it? They're going to yell at me for stealing their stuff. But yet, they obey, don't they? Because he's the king. What he says, it goes. The other thing we find is Zechariah 9, where it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The king has come now. The king is not coming on a war horse, is he? If I was a king, coming into my city that was overrun by Romans and overrun by unbelieving Jews who wanted to kill me, I would come in on a horse at that time. Today, probably a tank or something, right? And come in with a gun or a sword in my hand as the ruler who's going to take back what is his. Isn't that what you would do? But he's not coming like a conquering king. They could have whatever they wanted, the kings. And most things that they had, that kings had, were only for them. Right? You, the king gets the clean stuff. You don't give the king a used or a leftover meal, right? They get the first. They get the best. This is the idea here. This is the king of Judah's cult. It's not a war horse. His mission is peace. He will stop war. He will bring peace. This is what was so significant at his birth, isn't it? The hosts, armies, of angels are seen by the shepherds. And they are terrified. Why? Because the armies of God have just flooded the skies. And if the armies of God are coming, what do you expect? Death, destruction, recompense. But they came and said what? Peace on earth and goodwill. What is Jesus doing here? Coming into the city, fulfilling what it's talking about here in Zechariah 9. Bringing peace. His kingdom will spread over all the earth and it will bring peace. The king who would fight battles is actually cutting off war. He will bring peace between God and man and between man and man. Now the second point, the crowd completely misses Jesus. So this is incredibly significant, right? There is a radical difference between who the crowds want Jesus to be and who he really is. The crowds are expecting Jesus to come in. They're laying out their coats. They're laying down the branches. They're putting their coat on Jesus' 
donk the donkey he rides. They're, they are saying the king is coming to Jerusalem. The king is going to be established on the throne in Jerusalem. That was their expectation. That was everything they wanted. Wipe out the Romans. Let us revolt. Let us take these men and these women who are, who are defiling the holy city of Jerusalem and kill them and wipe them out and establish the kingdom of peace. That was what they expected. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Expectations are running wild. Death to the Rome, death to the tyrants was what's going through their minds. But he is not bringing war as expected. Instead, he will bring peace. Jesus will take the flaming sword that blocked access to God's presence and he will allow that flaming sword to fall upon himself. And he will break the blade of that flaming sword upon himself in order to bring us into the garden of God's presence. Jesus will tear the curtain from top to bottom, the curtain that blocked access to the most holy place in order to bring us directly into the presence of the living God who is a consuming fire. The king has come, but his kingdom will be brought in a different way, different than expected. The label is different. But this doesn't stop the people. Their expectations drive their actions. The people are more than likely not from Jerusalem, or at least not native to Jerusalem, the pilgrims. They're journeying for, for the Passover. And so some of them have just witnessed a great miracle, a blind man giving sight, a crooked tax collector giving back all this money. Who does that? They have possibly seen and talked with Lazarus, who was raised from the dead by the son of David, they are saying, is not the Messiah upon us? Is not this the time of victory? And so the disciples spread their cloaks upon the colt's back. And the people spread their cloaks and leafy branches on the road. They're making a new road for the king. They're proclaiming his kingship, his right to the Davidic throne. And they're pledging themselves to his service by taking their cloaks and putting them on the ground. They're saying, our life is yours. We will fight for you. We will do what it takes for you to have victory oh, in, in have this kingdom. So the king has come. So then this is what's fun. If you look at the book of Mark, they're actually like doing an antiphonal thing. Like so that one crowd is saying something and then another crowd is responding, and then the other side of the crowd is responding back, and so forth, and they are doing this with Psalm 118. And this is why we use Psalm 118 throughout our service today, even as the benediction, because Psalm 118 is the prophecy that is fulfilled in Christ coming to Jerusalem. So they say, once one, one, they say this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The front of the crowd cries out, Save us. The back cries out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. To which the front replies, Save us, you who are in the highest heaven. This is some really amazing stuff that's being said about this man. Jesus, isn't it? Oh, you who comes in the name of the Lord, 
Blessed is your kingdom of our father, David. This psalm was a traditional greeting, actually, that came, uh, that people who were going on pilgrimage would use to one another. They were coming in the name of the Lord. They were giving a bless, given a blessing as they arrived. So when they came in, they would say this, we've come, and then the, other, the, the crowd would respond and give them a blessing back. And so this is what's happening. But they're taking this blessing and applying it to Christ. They were blessed, they were happy, for they were God's people that were celebrating God's redemption that Jesus Christ was going to bring right then and there is what they thought. And so, but the crowd seems to see that Jesus is God's redemption. So now they turn those blessings, instead of just on one another, they turn those blessings to him. He is the one who is bringing in the reign of David. Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is David's greater son. Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the son of David, heir to the throne. And so they are saying, Liberation! Freedom! The king has returned! But things are not as they seem. Like packaging that has changed, the people were living in light of their hope and expectation, which did not align with Christ's kingdom. The problem is, like us, they weren't watching the signs of the times. They couldn't see Jesus. They could only see the package that they remembered, their expectations. They couldn't see the new packaging. They needed to look for the right thing. They needed to hear what John the Baptist was saying, what Jesus was saying. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist and Jesus did not say, get your swords, for the kingdom of God is at hand, did they? They said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. They needed Jesus. They didn't need rules and regulations. They needed to repent of their pride. They needed to become like little children and follow Jesus. Instead, they kept looking for what they expected to find. So now the rumors of this great procession seep out. The Pharisees hear in the commotion. They come in. They infiltrate the crowds. They're not happy at all. They are not happy. The crowds are attributing to Jesus what only the Messiah should give, be given. And in their minds, Jesus is not the Messiah. And so the crowd must be wrong. So they demand that Jesus rebuke his disciples for this procession. Jesus' response is just a flat-out, nope, I'm not doing it. And so if they didn't cry out, he said, the stones would cry out in praise. I think it's actually a veiled allusion to Habakkuk 2.11, which is a woe upon those who build a city on violence. Or even to the verses proceeding in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus has been rejected by the Pharisees. And he is the cornerstone. And the whole house will be built upon him as the chief cornerstones, the chief of the stones. Or perhaps he is looking around at all the stones in that mountainous terrain, and he's simply saying that if nobody was there, all creation, all creation would recognize the significance of what he, who he is and what he's doing. 
basically, Jesus is saying, you know, guys, the rocks are recognizing me. But you're dumber than rocks. You haven't recognized me. The rocks are more intelligent than you. The rocks see what you can't see. Because the rocks are doing what they were supposed to do, what they were designed to do. But you, you are not. You will not submit to the king, to what the king says, to the, his perception, to his desires, to his plan for this world. No, you have to be who you want to be, not who I made you to be. I think there's a deep connection there. So perhaps the Pharisees quickly shuffle through the crowd, whispering here and whispering there, and make sure that all these pilgrims know that this guy, he's not the Messiah. That's what they're doing. And their hopes are unfounded. Or perhaps they threaten them and say, if you keep this up, we won't allow you in the synagogues. Religious persecution because of Jesus. Our third point is this, how we should believe Jesus. The procession is now stopped because Jesus has stopped and he looks out over Jerusalem. Well, this is really important. Jesus stops and he looks out over Jerusalem. He begins to weep. And he then explains to those around him why he is weeping, why he is pouring out tears of sorrow. Let me try to paraphrase this. If only you knew that I have come to bring peace. Look, I'm coming, as Zechariah prophesied, in peace, and you can't see it. You're blind. You will soon cry out to have me killed. You will curse yourselves and your children, asking for God to revenge my death upon you. Oh, and it will happen. This city will be destroyed. This great city, the one that bears my name, every stone will be torn down because you didn't recognize the chief cornerstone, me. You didn't recognize that I am the Messiah, that I am the true king. You will be held accountable for the rejection of your creator. The very enemies that you wanted me to destroy that I came to save will destroy you. If you look at Luke and you read what he's saying there, you can see those things. Because he's saying there won't be one stone left upon another. Jerusalem will be destroyed. So, Jesus gives a lamentation because his own people did not recognize him. And instead, his own people will kill him. And this is necessary for all the nations to find salvation. But woe, woe to those who reject this salvation. Perhaps after this lament, the crowds don't, do not understand, so they just simply disband. Because you really, you don't hear much more of it, right? Like you read this thing, it's like this big thing, and then all of a sudden it's like, it's over. I mean, Jesus is still going into the city, and everybody just disappears. And so, another hope dashed in their minds. Another Messiah, eh, gone. Time to break it up. Completely anticlimactic. I mean, do you get the weight of this, of this story? I mean, we have this climax. The king of the king, the son of David, is coming to his city. And we're done. So, the day's ending. He simply goes into Jerusalem. Sunday's light is fading. And Jesus goes into the temple. And it says he examines it. Then the disciples, after this, more than likely walk back to Bethany, sad and disheartened. So much of their hopes, so much of their dreams, gone. 
But I want to read a verse from Malachi that might make sense of Jesus going into the temple and inspecting it. Listen to this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's the, John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek, that's Jesus, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Why did Jesus go to the temple? Because he was fulfilling Malachi. Because he came in as the king, and then he went to his temple. It is his temple, and he inspects it. And when he inspects it, he finds it wanting. He delights. The messenger of the covenant, the delight of his people, has inspected that temple and found it wanting. It was supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations to draw the wicked nations to Christ and give them a chance to meet with God. A place that would offer the nations a way of peace and communion with God. It, however, had become a politically charged, nationalistic den of thieves who didn't seek God but sought power and wealth. It had become the complete opposite of what it was intended to be. Can you see that? God's people had failed to fulfill their mission of living in God's blessing and blessing the nations. They were squandering God's blessings on themselves. And they had made an exclusive religiosity that did not at all reflect the nature of God. It did not reflect his love. It did not reflect his mercy. It did not reflect his long-suffering. They wanted a king. They wanted a king that they could control. They wanted a kingdom that they could use for their own good, that they could use to get glory for themselves. They wanted a reign of peace through subservience, their enemies serving them, not them serving their enemies. In short, they wanted to be great, and they would reject any king who claimed that humility was a path to God. That's what Jesus is saying. I come in as a king, humble, riding on a colt, the fowl, the donkey. The king is coming, and he is not what anyone expected. So here's my question and the application for us today. Who's your king? What does he look like to you? Have you allowed his definitions to define him? Or have you made an idol, an image of Jesus, an image of the king that doesn't look at all like him? Do you have expectations of Jesus to be a power monger and a warring general? Do you expect that you can establish his kingdom by just being nasty and mean to people and forcing them to see who Jesus is, your depiction of Jesus? Or are you looking at the Jesus that is the king of the Jews, the savior of the nations? 
Are you building a kingdom of your own? And Jesus just happens to be a stone in your kingdom that you're building. Or are you saying, I submit to your word and whatever it says and whatever it teaches about who I am, about what this kingdom looks like? Or instead, do you just flip through and pick things that you want to hear? And so Jesus is maybe just a God of love. Or maybe he's just an angry God of wrath. Maybe he's not the one who is full of wrath for his enemies, but full of mercy, full of justice, full of love, full of perfectly balancing every single thing that we as humans just can't do. This is the king. The king gets to tell you who he is. The king gets to tell you how he will reign. The king gets to tell you how you will live your life. The king is Lord of your heart and Lord of all your life. So have you created a Jesus that doesn't have that power and that authority over you? What are you expecting out of his kingdom? Are you looking for the old label? Have you missed the kingdom because you're looking for something that doesn't exist? God's loving care sent John the Baptist and even Jesus to warn of God's coming judgment. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have all been given this warning. The question is whether or not we'll listen to it. God expects you and I to stop following our own ways. He expects us to stop living in the fantasy world, the fantasy kingdom that we've made up. He's expecting us to find out what the kingdom is by what he has said it is. The world has no right to tell you who Jesus is. Jesus is the only one who has the right to tell you who he is. So, are you seeing the warning signs that God has set out for you? Or will you ignore the kingdom's true nature and find yourself in Jerusalem as it's getting torn down with corpses that are lying everywhere? The father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Are you listening to Jesus and allowing his kingdom and the framework of his kingdom to frame your reality? Where is your reality coming from? Your background, what your parents taught you, what you've read, the things you've studied, the news, your friends, your family, your own thinking. What, what's framing your reality? Is Jesus? Because if he's not, you've missed him. And you need to look at him again. Now, I want us to see a few things about Jesus. Jesus' love. Are you living in love as he has defined what it looks like to be a Christian by sacrificing your pride to tell others the good news of this king who has come? Jesus is our life. Is he your all in all? 
Do you need or want more than Jesus? Do you let the approval of others allow your, the kingdom of God to be framed by what you want it to be? Jesus is light. Are you allowing his light to shine on your moral choices? What you watch, what you listen to, how you talk to others. Jesus is our shepherd. Are you allowing your shepherd to guide your life decisions, to guide everything that you do, your life plans? Jesus is our king. Are you trusting him to provide for you? Are you trusting him to protect you? Or are you living in fear? Because he's really not your king who is your sovereign protector. Jesus is our Lord. Are you willing to do whatever he tells you, even if it's to go? I'm not telling you to go steal somebody's stuff. Okay? But if he tells you to go and take and untie that donkey, and when people say, what are you doing? You don't get embarrassed, but you say, the king needs it. Is that, is that his lordship over you? Or will you tell him, no, no, I don't want to do that. It's uncomfortable. It's going to put me in an awkward position. Is he your Lord? But Jesus is our peace. Are you living as if his character determines your conduct? Right? See, his peace needs to flow out of you. If you don't have his peace, it's not going to flow out of you. Your character won't be changed. But if you have a settled peace because you know the king is the king of peace, then you can live differently. Your character can be different because you're not always at war trying to figure out how to shuffle the shells around, how to make yourself look good, or how to keep people from not liking you, or all these other things. See, if he's your peace, you can live with boldness and in confidence because he's your peace. So here's my final question for you. Is the true king forming your reality? If not, I want you to ask yourself, what am I allowing to frame my reality? Listen, brothers and sisters, I exhort you, I implore you, let the maker and redeemer construct your reality. Let his kingdom be that which you seek above all. Amen. Father, I am as guilty as everyone else because I can think and make your kingdom into whatever I want it to be. And that is idolatry and that is sin. Forgive me Help me to look to you and let your kingdom frame my reality. Would you allow your brother, uh, my brothers and sisters here to let Jesus frame their reality and not allow opinions and thoughts and ideas of the world and of themselves and of others to frame their reality. We praise you and worship you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.